Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series in conversation with K2 Intelligence Finn, CEO Jeremy Kroll on GRC risks, strategies, in the future. This special five-part podcast series is sponsored by K2 Intelligence Finn. As president, CEO, and co-founder of K2 Intelligence Finn, Jeremy Kroll is responsible for charting the firm's growth strategy. With more than two decades of investigative and leadership experience, Kroll has led K2 Intelligence since its inception in 2009 through its growth into an internationally recognized firm with six offices across the United States and Europe, including its merger with the Financial Integrity Network in September 2019. Kroll serves as a trusted advisor and more complex problem solver to business owners, boards of directors, and C-suite executives, working with them to mitigate risk across the corporate and family office spheres. He advises clients on risk management as they pursue strategic investments, including cross-border acquisitions and multinational investments, and helps to navigate the changing physical and cybersecurity landscape in a way that embraces technological change while minimizing strategic risk. Over this podcast series, we will explore in episode one, GRC Explained, in episode two, GRC at Work, in episode three, GRC and Investment Community, in episode four, GRC at K2 Intelligence Fin, and in episode five, GRC Then and Now. It's a podcast series that I know you will not only enjoy, but get a lot out of. This special five-part podcast series is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jeremy Kroll for another episode in our five-part exploration of GRC. Today, we're going to take a look at GRC at work or perhaps GRC failures at work. So, Jeremy, first of all, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Great to be back. So uh, you've looked at this area for uh, quite some time and quite a number of examples of GRC failures uh, or successes. I was wondering how uh, some of these may have kept companies on track and what you saw as stakeholder expectations. God, there's just so many to think about. Uh, Let me just start uh, with some good news um, and one example where uh, an organization faced with the exogenous threat of um, the largest FCPA prosecution and, and ultimately settlement back in 2008. I'm just thinking about Siemens. And this was really landmark in terms of the size of the settlement. Um, and I also think it was landmark in terms of the um, the commitment that the company made across the board to really take the hard decisions and follow through, um, make the changes so that it can not only live to fight another day, but to actually remain in business and ultimately thrive and, and take advantage of their, their global positioning. And this is a case where you saw an overhaul leadership um, from the CEO on down, including general counsel, chief audit officer, head of compliance, um, and, and really a, an ability to self-reflect on the culture at the executive level because they realize that incentives drive behavior. And that is where things just got out of control in this organization and, and shenanigans um, was brought to a high art form. So uh, that's an example, Tom, where I think 
uh, an organization faced with the threat of um, getting put out of business uh, allowed them, and, and I applaud, you know, not just the, the, the management, but the board. Uh, but it is an example where the, the U.S. government saw something, took a very strong position, gave the organization an opportunity to, to remediate and, and, and take it seriously. And this is one where, you know, the company took advantage of that opportunity. I, wanted to, I had a friend who uh, described Siemens as having one of the world's top compliance programs, yet having a German engineering workaround. It seemed uh, during the 2000s, the early 2000s, literally up to the time of the announcement of the enforcement action, that Siemens did have a, uh, if not uh, first class, at least a superior written policies and procedures. Um, if if you find that to be accurate, why was there such a catastrophic failure? I think, again, it's uh, where incentives are a reflection of the culture of the business. If you're a publicly listed company, you have that quarterly pressure um, where you have to be able to step up every quarter as management and talk about great stuff and sell the dream. And particularly as you get to bonus season, as you get to the periods of time when everybody is thinking about their, their wallet, um, it's a very short-termist type mentality. So I think to your question, uh, there's probably no better um, model in terms of uh, an engineering mindset to put things down on paper. But if they're just committed to paper and not to practice, there's a huge ability to just um, hack. In other words, hack around the rules. And particularly when you're under a certain amount of pressure, whether it's at the top, the middle or the bottom, people feel it. And that's why I think with Siemens, you have that um, sort of stark reality between looking great on paper and looking horrific in practice. Um, these days, if you flash forward almost 20 years, um, I think organizations need to accept if they don't, they're going to die that culture is everything and culture based upon core values is what people really look for, not just to get paid and to get their bonus. And of course that matters, but psychic compensation is as important as ever. And in, in a time that we're living in, there are no more secrets. We just have to accept that anything that can be found out will come out. And you now have also uh, an environment where whistleblowers or people who see something are going to say something one way or the other, whether it's to their manager or anonymously on some blog, it's going to come out. And so there's a certain level of accountability now that organizations have to accept that not just they're going to face every quarter with shareholders or institutional investors, they have to answer to their people. First and foremost. So I was wondering if in your study of these failures, if you've been able to identify a few key elements uh, across uh, multiple of these case studies of the breakdowns or perhaps uh, the mitigations that uh, covered them. Yeah, I've got five of them. And I would start from the, 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 the fifth back to the first um, because 
Number five is the efficacy of the compliance program. Uh, if there's actually a compliance program in place, it means more than likely this organization's had a bad hair day. And so they've put something in place. Um, but is it effective? Just because it's written down, just because there's some training program, there's a box to tick, um, that doesn't necessarily settle things. Number four, transparency. Again, unless and until there's information being shared up, down, across, then the organization will not be able to identify gaps or weaknesses, uh, report or communicate, uh, in which case things fester and can go wrong. Number three, resource requirements. So do your internal stakeholders have the kind of people, process, technology that's really needed if you just give someone sodium pentothal and you ask, can we move fast enough to evaluate the health, safety, or risks to our culture based on the speed in which we're investing in one particular area or another? And if the answer, if they've been injected with true serum is, no, I don't have enough people, or no, I don't have enough technology, then you're already fighting with one hand behind your back. Number two, governance structure. If there's an ineffective or a centralized governance structure where all the power is sort of centralized and it's not distributed or disseminated, you're not going to have individuals feeling empowered to come forward or to be honest during some testing or tuning processes, in which case, again, you're, you're dealing with uh, finding out when it's too late. And, and of, of course, number one is, is it's sort of like the Ten Commandments, you know, policies and procedures. Um, and although I use that, you know, the analogy of the Ten Commandments, that it's written in stone, it's okay to write it in stone because it means this is serious. But it's also okay to say, you know, we can also edit and evolve our commandments, our policies and procedures. The minute they become codified and permanent, that's the minute in which you can start counting down to something going wrong, you finding out too late, and you got a reputational, financial, operational risk that is, is much harder and much more expensive to control. Let me pick up on a point you just ended with uh, before it becomes too late. And I want to tie that into the June 2020 Department of Justice update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, where one of the clear emphasis of that document was on data, data analytics, breaking through data silos, but not simply numbers. It was much broader. It was information. And so I was wondering how data and information would fit into this framework for uh, uh, GRC uh, practitioners to help them understand where they are, perhaps where they're going or where they might need to go? Sure. Well, we, um, in our original family business called Pearl Associates, um, which was founded in 1972, I was fortunate enough to join in 1996 at the beginning of my career. And um, really starting in the late 70s, moving into the early 80s, uh, the notion of a background check was very esoteric and was the sort of provenance of uh, security clearance 
work that the federal government was performing in, in one sector or another. And so it wasn't really something that existed in the private sector. But after a number of massive uh, frauds in and around IPOs or secondary offerings where, frankly, management teams were lying about inventory, lying about their backgrounds, they were really committing some large-scale fraud. Um, I think both the regulatory community <laughs> took notice, meaning the, the, the government agencies oversighting, like, for example, the SEC, um, but also investors started to become wary. Who am I doing business with? Are they safe to do business with? Are they ethical? Are they going to create more risk for me beyond just this um, financial formula I've created? And so the availability of public information that would tell you whether someone was who they said they were, uh, did they have the career that they claimed to or the education that they did? Um, are there any uh, patterns here of, for example, litigation or fiduciary problems? Um, and I think for our, so for our benefit being in, in the GRC space from the 70s onward, we leveraged information available first, very unstructured, or they were sitting in dusty uh, basements of courthouses or in libraries, um, but then increasingly it became more and more digitized. And so we followed this along the way over the decades. Now you have um, really critical data in terms of deciding, is this customer safe to bank with? not just in a conventional um, lender, borrower, or depositor type of relationship, but now you're into digital currency and, and crypto exchanges where the whole idea is to remain anonymous in a transaction. And so you then have to look at other sources of data, which might be now unstructured. In other words, on the dark or deep web, and where are you going to be able to find reliable information about this individual? Where are you going to be able to find reliable information on the internet when many stories that are written um, as, quote, news stories about an individual could easily be misinformation? So if you're trying as a banking professional to lend to or a compliance expert inside a banking institution somebody who's from a high-risk geography, who is an entrepreneur, may or may not have been in the government, you now have a huge amount of information. you got to sort of sift through to figure out the wheat from the chaff. So there's never been more data. There's never been more information available, Tom, than ever before, which on the one hand, you'd say, well, that should make people's jobs easier. I think it's made it harder you now have to assemble a profile very quickly that is also reliable because if you turn away, you know, that entrepreneur from the Ivory Coast, you've lost a client. May be a completely legitimate person. Now the bank down the street counts that person as a, as a client. You've just lost the business because you couldn't get over, you know, the data hump. Jeremy, I was wondering if we might conclude with some of the biggest lessons you may have learned from the case studies. Well, in our prior business, um, we, we had the fortunate honor of re, sort of restructuring 
Enron when it was in chapter 11. Uh, and we had a, a, an entire practice devoted to um, restructuring bankrupt and, and, and deeply troubled companies. Uh, while we may have started out in the, in the private investigative industry, um, we, we really were a risk mitigation, risk consulting business. And so as we grew, we expanded um, to the sort of farthest reaches of what a risk spectrum would look like, which is to go out of business. So we were able to have a front row seat on uh, Enron after it had collapsed and being able to pick apart what happened, uh, being able to understand what were the different methods um, and schemes and understand what human beings were capable of doing and uh, with the wrong incentives in place or with uh, the wrong tone from the top in place. So that, along with dozens of other bankruptcies that we're involved with overseeing, helped inform what is the worst case scenario, Tom? How do, how do um, schemes get out of control? You know, as, as we say um, to our four children, my wife and I say, listen, the cover up is worse than the lie. You're better off just telling the truth. I made a mistake. You'll sleep better at night. We'll sleep better at night. We won't have to expend so much uh, creativity and investigative energy to figure out what you did wrong. But, but seriously, I think that the little things can, um, without a proper GRC framework in place and without proper communication, transparency, practices, testing, um, and, and communication across and up and down, you know, these little, these little things that turn out to be a mistake can get covered up and the cover up gets covered up. And so when we would see situations, Tom, um, related to the theft of intellectual property, it usually started out um, where a company, and I'll give you one case example. We had a, a client recently who hired a top performing executive in their industry they felt so fortunate to get this person. They, they reached much further than they would normally to put together a package to get this person aboard. And they couldn't have been more delighted in the beginning because of just how much of an impact you know, this employee made. And this is not just a mid, middle manager. This is someone at the, at the officer level. This person, it turns out, was so successful because they, on their way out the door from their prior employer, who's a competitor, absconded with an entire customer list and all of the business intelligence around each of those key customers took it with them to this new employer and was able to start, you know, really knocking them down and bringing in business and share that information uh, that they had taken with their colleagues in the business. So it was, in fact, it was basically a virus coming in and infecting this organization, they had no idea. They were well-meaning. This was not intentional. And fortunately for them, they, they actually had a relationship with this competitor who said, we don't know if you're aware of this, but you need to know it's getting out that you guys are actually trafficking in stolen intellectual property. And the client had the right reaction, which is not to try to cover it up, but to address it full-throated, deeply, transparently, so that people in the firm knew there was accountability 
And along the way, because they took a strong investigative tact and they took uh, the tact that anything that they do will at some point be discoverable, it allowed them to have a stronger position in their, frankly, settlement negotiation with, uh, with the competitor. Jeremy, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted uh, any more information on any of the topics uh, or wanted to follow up with more information on K2 Intelligence Fin, where could they go? Thank you, Tom. Um, we can be found at, uh, on the web at www.k2intelligence.com or www.finintegrity.com. We're very active on LinkedIn. So if you look up uh, K2 Intelligence uh, along with Twitter, we're there. And with your help, we're um, obviously thrilled to be able to share these thoughts. Um, Thank you for having me. Jeremy, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Likewise. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation with K2 Intelligence Finn, CEO Jeremy Kroll on GRC Risks strategies, and the future. I hope you will join us again for another episode. This special five-part podcast series is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.